Listener Production. Hi, Sasha Barbagat with you. Welcome to The Briefing. Before we get into today's ep, I just wanted to let you know our two latest weekend briefing episodes are up on YouTube. We're working toward getting all of our interviews on YouTube. That's a work in progress. But in the meantime, you can check out Antoinette's chat with Josh Zepps and Tom's chat with Kumi Taguchi. Check them out, The Briefing on YouTube. Now, Ukraine and Russia have been at war for two years, with both sides suffering enormous casualties. In 2023, Russia made incremental territorial gains at great cost, while Ukraine has also failed to achieve the objectives of their counteroffensive. Ukraine really needs the assistance of its allies because it is sort of a dirtbag alliance versus Ukraine in this instance. Some of the major developments over the last year have seen the EU overtaking the US in funding the war, while Finland has become a NATO member as a result of the conflict. But as Russia will only end the war if Ukraine surrenders, and Ukrainians have made it equally clear they will continue to resist, the war appears to be at a stalemate. We will get a rundown on everything that has happened over the last two years and what the future will hold in the second half of the episode. First, though, Benson Siebert is here with the headlines. It is Monday, February 26. Authorities in Victoria are bracing for a flare-up of bushfire conditions this week after six homes were lost to blazes burning in the state's west. Two Watch and Act warnings remain in place at the time of recording for bushfires northwest of Ballarat. They say residents who haven't left yet should do so now. Wednesday is forecast to be hot and windy near the fire ground, which has become a major focus for fire crews. The hot conditions could also see bushfires spark in the Wimmera region, with large parts of Victoria also set to face potentially extreme fire risk, Sasha. Yeah, it's a really awful scenes coming out of there. Some livestock that have managed to survive, but there's no feed left for them. Really, really heartbreaking for residents who have been affected by these blazes. And look, disasters like this often spark talk of climate change and its impacts. And today, Australia has actually been warned of what's coming by the UN's top official who met with uh, PM Anthony Albanese and Climate Change Minister Chris Bowen last week. Now, Simon Steele is his name and he said Australia has a lot more to lose and also gain by either not taking action on climate change or taking action on climate change. One of the things he's warned of is that Australia is going to end up at the forefront of resettling Pacific refugees who will be forced to flee if oceans continue to rise, therefore impacting their environment and where they live. Also warning about the Murray-Darling food bowl and how that will be decimated. Uh, In his words, they haven't seen anything yet, basically saying if we think supermarket prices are high now, just wait down the line if we lose access to these extremely vital food bowls in Australia due to the impacts of climate change. So he's also gone on to say that Australia could seize uh, huge opportunities and avoid climate change if it adopted a climate forward economic reform agenda. So pretty strong words from the UN's top climate man. Absolutely. And I think Australia has demonstrated in its politics uh, most recently Uh, but also, uh, you know, 10 years ago or so, that we don't do well with the politics of asylum seekers and refugees in this country. The entire political system sort of 
got turned on its head during the late 2000s about asylum seekers coming here. And it it was a relatively low number. If we're worried about entire nation states full of people potentially coming here because of climate change, which is what this UN representative is saying we might worry about, then that's going to be a massive, massive problem for Australia. Parliament resumes today with the cost of living policies set to dominate. Labor is gearing up to pass its stage three tax cut changes, which will be debated in the Senate this week. Meanwhile, in the lower house, it's going to be all about housing, where a fight is brewing with the coalition and the Greens over the government's help to buy scheme. If passed, the shared equity scheme would allow more than 40,000 Australians to co-own their first home with the government, requiring just a 2% deposit. The opposition has already ruled out supporting the policy, which means Labor will need the Greens to get it through. But the party has its own agenda and is looking to pressure the government to add changes to negative gearing and capital gains policies to secure its support. The PM is planning to stare down the Greens, flagging he won't negotiate on his housing package. A massive loss for Donald Trump's only real Republican rival, Nikki Haley, over the weekend. She's lost in her home state of South Carolina. I'm not giving up this fight when a majority of Americans disapprove of both Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Nikki Haley has vowed to stay in the race until Super Tuesday, which is held on March 5th, when the highest number of US states hold primary elections. And that comes despite her failure in her home state of South Carolina, where she held far more campaign events and argued the indictments against Trump will hamstring him against Joe Biden. It consolidates Trump's lead to a third straight GOP nomination. And Trump has now swept every state that counted four Republican delegates, winning in Iowa, New Hampshire and Nevada, Bencion. Yeah, and South Carolina's first in the South primary has historically been a pretty reliable bellwether for Republicans. In almost every primary, the Republican winner in South Carolina has gone on to be the party's nominee. Now, Nikki Haley is what's kind of described as an establishment Republican, meaning she's the kind of conservative we might have expected in the US before Donald Trump think uh, George W. Bush, maybe. She worked as the US ambassador to the UN under Trump's presidency, and she puts herself up as kind of an antidote to Trump's chaos. But basically, Haley has no chance of defeating Donald Trump outside of some kind of unforeseen political miracle. The Washington Post notes today that Haley came in third in Iowa. She lost in double digits in New Hampshire. In Nevada, where Donald Trump's name wasn't even on the ballot, Nikki Haley received fewer votes than the box labelled none of these candidates. That box beat her by more than 30 points. Despite all that, she is still going, basically because she has the big donor money to do it. And a 120-year missing ship mystery has been solved by accident after a commercial company searching for lost cargo stumbled upon its wreckage off the coast of New South Wales. So the SS Nemesis, which was a coal ship, set off from Newcastle bound for Melbourne in July of 1904, but it never arrived. Now, bodies and parts of the wreckage did wash up on Sydney beaches in the weeks after. And despite huge public interest at the time and uh, a relative media storm for the early 1900s, the ship itself was never found until now. So the vessel was first spotted in 2022, 
but its identity has only just been confirmed after imaging and work done by the CSIRO. Uh, And we now know as well how the ship went down. Researchers believe its engine became overwhelmed in rough weather before being hit by a large wave, which caused it to sink too quickly for lifeboats to be deployed. Isn't science amazing, Bencion? They've made this discovery (laughs) 120 years later, it's wild. Yeah, that is incredible. And the New South Wales Environment and Heritage Minister Penny Sharp noted that about 40 children lost their parents in that wreck. She said, I hope this discovery brings closure to family and friends connected to the ship who have never known its fate. All these years later, maybe some closure. Yeah, it's interesting to think you wouldn't think of something like that from a 120-year-old mystery, but I suppose it would kind of impact the generations that followed, knowing that you had a loved one on board a ship that was never found and maybe they never found the bodies and, you know, you can imagine that that could have generational impact. So, yeah, really cool story to uh, end out today's headlines. Thanks so much for being here, Bencion. Next up is our deep dive looking at the last two years of the war in Ukraine and what we can expect in the future. It's been two years since the outbreak of the war in Ukraine. On the ground, the war is at a stalemate, but the conflict has highlighted a new Cold War-like division between the West and China and Russia. Funding the war has become a major issue in Western countries. The US Congress has been stalling on whether to send Ukraine another $60 billion in assistance, while the countries of the EU would need to step up their funding by investing at least another 0.25% of their GDP in military assistance. Well, on the two-year anniversary of the war beginning, we have Ukraine-born Australian and Politico journalist Zoya Sheftilovich here to take us through where we're at. Zoya, thanks so much for joining us on the briefing today. Look, let's start at the beginning. What has happened over the last two years on the ground in Ukraine? The last two years have been really brutal warfare and there have been several different phases of the war. We had the original rolling in of the Russian tanks into Ukraine, getting very close to Kyiv. We had the Ukrainians pushing that attack back. Uh, We had the counteroffensive that happened in 2022, which was quite a successful counteroffensive where Ukraine was able to take back some of those territories that had been lost. And now over the past year or so, we've had really the entrenchment of the war where we've had old school style warfare, where both sides have been entrenching, where the Russians have been placing significant amounts of mines all over the front lines to stop the Ukrainians from being able to take back territory in another counteroffensive and where people have been settling in for a long war in the hopes of Vladimir Putin's hopes that the West will tire of continuing to help Ukraine. And once that occurs, then Russia will be able to take as much territory as he wishes. Let's talk about the ability to continue fighting this war on both sides. Is funding an issue? What about the a number of troops that are needed by both sides to continue on? Do Russia and Ukraine have those capabilities? It's definitely getting difficult. So we know that on the Russian side from various experts' um, analysis that it looks like the Russians probably have around about two to three years remaining that they can continue fighting. They're using around about 40% of their GDP annually on defence right now, which is a huge amount, obviously. And they really have to use that money and it's not just being used on, you know, weaponry, though it's certainly being used on that, but it's also being used 
to essentially pay off the families of the men who are being killed on the front line. So definitely that is a very expensive enterprise and it's not the sort of thing that Putin can maintain forever because he does have an economy and he does have a a people that he needs to effectively uh, look after because we all know how coups happen and the way that they happen is when people are hungry and they take to the streets and when they're not getting their pensions and their salaries. So he's got maybe two, three years left in him and what he's hoping for is essentially that he's going to be able to win that war of attrition against Ukraine because Ukraine, basically the way that it maintains its ability to fight is with huge amounts of Western aid and that comes in the form of financial aid so that Ukraine can continue paying its soldiers and so that it can continue paying the salaries of public servants. We also know that Ukraine needs a huge amount of weaponry that it is getting very slowly from its Western allies. So at the initial onset of the war, there was a flurry of activity and lots of countries were giving weapons. But a lot of countries are now starting to run low on their own supplies. And there is a question of how long and how much they can continue contributing. So that is something that's happening. And we know that in the US, in the Congress, there's a real holdup of this giant aid package that Ukraine needs to stay afloat. In the EU, luckily, um, that has moved forward. So we expect that Ukraine will probably get those billions, they will start flowing in March. So that's going to be really much needed help. But what we also know is that the Russians are getting help. They're getting help from Iran, they're getting help from North Korea, and they're getting help from China. And that help comes in the form of weaponry. We uh, know that they've received around about a million shells from North Korea that they can use against Ukraine. We know that they've received weaponry from Iran, the Shahed drones, for example, as well as other items of use. And we know that China, through various back channel means, not directly, but various back channel means, is providing Russia with a lot of those so-called dual-use goods. So it's microchips that they can put into their various missiles and things like that, which they're claiming are you know, being shipped for fridges and washing machines. But we know certainly because we've seen them in weapons that have been recovered from the battlefield that they're actually being used in weaponry. So the Russians are getting help as well. They're not going it alone. Uh, And that's why Ukraine really needs the assistance of its allies, because it is sort of a dirtbag alliance versus uh, Ukraine in this instance. Can we speak a little bit more about the wider geopolitical impacts the Ukraine war has had to date? What are we seeing globally in terms of relationships, especially when it comes to, you know, like China? How has that impacted those relationships? It's essentially sort of like a snow globe. Everything got tossed up and came back down again, and we've got a completely different scene now. So we know that Russia is seeking close ties with China. It's seeking close ties with Iran and with North Korea and with others. We also can see Russia's fingerprints in all sorts of things that are happening around the world. So we know that Russian troll farms are used to spread various forms of misinformation, disinformation, um, disconsent, disunity in various countries when it comes to election times. We've seen huge disruption, but also we know that if there's some disruption, that there's loads of stuff happening that isn't being disruption. When it comes to troll farms targeting the European election, which is a huge election that's coming up in June, where Russia has been putting a finger on the scale for far-right parties and far-left parties that are less likely to fund Ukraine. We've seen Russia forming this so-called uh, no-limits partnership, no-limits friendship with China. We know that's not true because, uh, you know, China is a... Xi Jinping is a very self-interested party in this as well, and so it, it's not quite no-limits, but certainly he has moved closer to China as a sort of counterbalance to the US influence that 
is uh, being seen as the force behind Ukraine. Ukraine, on the other hand, geopolitically, I mean, this war has been a complete game changer for the Ukrainians. Firstly, it has brought Ukraine closer than ever to the EU. So Ukraine has been trying to get entry to the EU and to NATO for many, many years. In 2008, famously, Ukraine was not given a path toward NATO entry. And basically, as a result of this war, Ukraine now does have, firstly, a path to EU entry. It got this, um, the opening of accession talks has happened where um, the EU has said, yes, you know, Ukraine is going to be a part of the EU. That's a long process, but this is the beginning of that long process. And Ukraine essentially short-circuited some of those very long and arduous and difficult steps that are needed before you even get to this stage. So Ukraine is certainly being welcomed into the European family. And on the NATO front, while it is still waiting for sort of tangible, concrete steps as to how it's going to get into NATO, certainly NATO has said that it is open to Ukraine joining and Ukraine will eventually become a a member of NATO. So uh, before the war, much as Vladimir Putin likes to deny that this is the case, there was no way that Ukraine was going to get entry to NATO. It was really a red line for all parties involved. Now, it is not looking like that at all. And I would say that before the war, it was almost impossible that Ukraine in any sort of medium or even long term was going to be getting EU entry. And now it's looking like that's going to happen much sooner as well. So on both sides, it has created outcomes that I think Putin did not foresee. And some of those outcomes are the exact opposite of what he was hoping for. Looking ahead, this year there are two pretty major elections that could have an impact on what's going on in the war. Uh, The Russian elections in March, which we kind of know which way that's going to go, but I'm keen to hear what you think could be the impact of of that. And also in November, the US elections. Now, if Donald Trump is re-elected as president, that could significantly change what's happening in terms of funding and aid. Is that right? Definitely. So I can start on the US election. There is a great deal of fear that Donald Trump is going to get re-elected in November and that that will mean that the aid to Ukraine from the US rise up and that weaponry for Ukraine from the US dries up. He has given every indication that that is his plan should he take power, America first and Ukraine, who cares? And that fear is pervasive in Ukraine, but it's also pervasive in Europe. And for Europe, it's a much more existential fight than it is for the Americans. The Americans, it's a bit esoteric. It's on the other side of the Atlantic. It's unlikely that Russia would actually attack US territory. So there's a real feeling that this is like a distant, faraway war. And do we really need to be fighting it when we've got problems on the southern border, which is essentially the Republican line? From the European perspective, it's a very different story because there are several EU countries that share a border with Russia and Ukraine. If Russia takes Ukraine, there will be more. Uh, You've got frontline states like Poland that has unfinished business with Russia as well. The Baltics, which are former members of the Soviet Union and that Russia has its eye on and has mentioned as potential uh, sort of unfinished business as well. So you've got countries within the heart of the EU who are really concerned about what might happen if Ukraine falls because it brings Russia closer to their doorstep. Germany has recently, in fact, Europe rather, has recently overtaken the US as the major funder of Ukraine. So the Europeans are stepping up to fill that void. But the fact is that they're not going to be able to entirely fill that void because the US is a major player, they're a major arms manufacturer, and they've got more money than anyone else. So it's a real concern. And that is something that the Ukrainians are watching with great fear. On the 
election in Russia. Certainly, we know that Putin is going to win this election. We know it's going to be a sham election. The last election he won, we saw videos of ballot stuffing, of bags of votes being thrown away and bags of other votes being replaced. So we know what kinds of elections the Kremlin holds. That said, there is a definite danger to Putin from having a dissatisfied people. And there is a definite danger from an opposition that might be able to galvanize. Unfortunately, that danger to Putin was recognized, and that's why Alexei Navalny has been murdered um, effectively in his Arctic prison, in the Russian Arctic prison, because he was the last bastion of the Russian opposition. He was this image of someone who was presenting an alternative, because at the moment in Russia, At this point in time, there is no one who is presenting an alternative. There is no one left. All opposition politicians have been murdered or forced to flee overseas. But that said, if the war continues dragging on, if Russia continues losing hundreds of thousands of troops, which we know it has been, we know that the Russians have lost upwards of a million. Um, These people are going to start getting a bit antsy, particularly if their pensions aren't being paid, if they're starting to go hungry. So we think that probably there is some danger to Putin, but it's probably not going to happen by March. Is it unlikely that we're going to see an end to the war in Ukraine anytime soon? I think it's such a difficult question to answer because there are so many variables. And I think the US election is a major variable. I think also the question of what happens in these next few months is going to really make a difference because the Russians have been retaking some territory. The Ukrainians have managed to hold them off in a lot of the more important strategic places. But certainly, while momentum seems to be heading in Ukraine's direction in 2022, I would say over the course of 2023, early 24, it's probably swung towards the Russians a little bit. Uh, But really, it all depends on who's elected in the US. I think if there's a Biden um, re-election, then the US will probably redouble its efforts at supporting Ukraine, at which point the Ukrainians may find that they're doing, they're able to remake those battlefield losses that they've made and maybe make some more gains, especially if the Europeans after the EU election, which happens in June, are also able to start putting more money and more arms into Ukraine's hands. So I think this is a key, crucial period. I don't see the war ending any time in the next couple of months. But depending on what happens in these various elections, we may see some move towards some sort of negotiation. But I think that is really a question for the various voters in the US and in Europe. That was Zoya Sheftalovich, a Ukraine-born Australian and Politico journalist. And that is all we have time for on this morning's episode, but we'll be back at 3pm with another deep dive. And if you'd like to get in touch with us here at The Briefing, a lot of you have lately, so thank you, but we want to hear from more of you, whether it's an episode idea or something you'd like to have your say on, search The Briefing on Instagram and send us a message and be sure to join our broadcast channel Behind The Briefing. I'm Sasha Barbagat. Thanks for listening. Listener.